Hi friends, today I'm going to be talking with my dear friend, Sean Osman. And I wanna let you know, we are gonna be talking about some pretty sensitive subjects, but they're things that need to be shared and talked about. We are gonna be talking about Sean's past abortions and her alcohol addiction and the shame and the regret and the things that held her back for so long. And we share her stories to give you the hope and the encouragement of knowing that our God is bigger than any shame that the enemy can hold over your head. I'm so thankful for Sean and for her bravely sharing her stories and how she shares on the class she now teaches on abortion recovery. I will have all this information in the show notes for anybody, anybody out there that needs a place to go, a safe space. Reach out there. Reach out to your church. Uh, friends that you know are your safe place, but don't let this haunt you any longer. I want you to hear Sean's story because it's so encouraging and life-giving and just shares how much Jesus turned her life around. And now she lives out her life being his hands, feet, and heart in all the ministries and the things that she does. Sean truly lives out her days helping other women. It is her passion. It is her desire for women to have healing. And you will know by her story that it is possible for you too. So sit back and just listen to my friend, Sean, and be encouraged and know that there is always hope because we have Jesus. Okay, friends. So let's just welcome Sean Osmond to our podcast today. Hi, Sean. Hi, Carla. I am so glad you're here. So glad to be here. Oh, um, okay. This is a story I wanted to put out there for quite a while now. Um, I knew immediately when I started a podcast that I wanted Sean to be on here because she is a dear friend of mine. I know her story and I know that it'll speak to someone out there. So let's get started and let me just ask you, just share with me your life, your story, your background, kind of your upbringing. Just, just kind of tell everybody who you are and, and your background. Yeah, so I feel like I had a pretty unremarkable childhood up until the age of about 13. And then my parents got divorced and I feel like that was a thing that kind of set in, into motion a lot of chaos a lot of, um, I don't know, just not having stability. And in that, a lot of confusion about who I was and what I was supposed to be doing and just trying to be an adult while I was still a little kid. So the divorce was super hard, but during that time, my mom took on the responsibility of working extra jobs, going back to school, all the things that you do as a single mama, trying to take care of three kids. And so that left a lot of the parenting and house cleaning and things up to me. Mm. And so I just took on that role and um, wasn't very good at it <laughs> at 13. At, yeah, 13, that's hard. <laughs> but um, what I did find is that I had a lot of freedom just because I mm. was unsupervised. And so started doing some things I shouldn't be doing, hanging out with people I shouldn't have been hanging out with and started drinking at a really early age. And so the first time I ever got like blackout drunk was when I was in eighth grade. And um, it was just some random night. I was spending the night with a friend. We had snuck out, had gotten some beer. And then through the course of that night, 
I don't exactly remember the circumstances, but I did end up in the back seat of a car with a boy. And I don't have a real good recollection of how far it went, but I know that something happened sexually. And that was the beginning of the shame journey. Mm. Um, Being in eighth grade and that news getting out really quickly, and that was before phones and social media, but within a week, everybody in my school knew about what had happened. And I went from being an athletic, popular person to being somebody who was a partier and, you know, sleazy. And how difficult that is at that age. And you think about even back then, we didn't have social media. We didn't have things, thankfully, mm-hmm. to take pictures and all that to be out there. The but but you still had people that talked about it, that shared notes, whatever form of communication. And then all of a sudden, yes, the enemy hits you with shame. And then it... it seems to spiral from there. And I I say that speaking from experience in the same type experiences. And it happened so quickly. It was like it just, I went from just this normal kid to just taking on this new identity that that everyone that um, heard the story decided to give me. And so we become what people tell us that we are. Mm, That's so so true. I lived um, in that little town for only a few months after that. And then we moved to a smaller town because my mom was needing some help. And so we moved to where my grandparents lived. So I, in a way, I got a fresh start, but I still took all of that with me. Well, that's what I was wondering. So if you had a fresh start, did you go back to the same things, the drinking and all the things? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I just jumped right back in with that yeah. same group of kids. Yeah. And sexually promiscuous, all of the things. Mm, okay. Then my senior year of high school, I got pregnant. Mm. And the boy that I was with at the time, he was actually older than me. So he was a senior, or I'm sorry, he was a freshman in college and I was a senior in high school. Okay. And so um, that pregnancy was so strange because it was something that I didn't even consider telling anyone about. Like my mom, no way. I'm not going to be sharing this with her. Any adult in my family, no. So it was just something that just he and I knew. And then we made the decision to to abort the baby. Let me interrupt you there. Uh-huh. So first, I mean, did you ever have concerns or even really think about when you were being promiscuous of getting pregnant? And then secondly, how far along were you? Mm-hmm. So I didn't... I was often on the pill the whole time that I was having sex, and so I don't really know exactly if I was off the pill or on the pill when I got pregnant, but like it was a big surprise. Like that was something that I was super caught off guard by. Okay. The um, my understanding too of the pregnancy, like there was not a doubt in my mind that that was a baby. No doubt in my mind, even mm-hmm. as a 18 year old kid or 17 year old kid like I knew what was going on and what was so interesting is it just seemed like this is just the logical thing when you get pregnant in high school you have an abortion because if you don't then the rest of your life is ruined and where I got that I don't know I don't know if it was just from my peer group or if it was something that I was hearing in magazines or on TV I have no idea like where that thought came from but it was something that I had never had a conversation with with my mom about my mom and I didn't even have a conversation about sex let alone those just weren't things we just that, didn't do it that, and I know there are families that they did talk about it but I know there was never conversations about abortions or 
um, any of that. So, I mean, in our family, we sure didn't talk about it. Yeah, same. Mm -hmm. And actually, there... For, for a really long time, I did not even recollect telling anyone, but I did tell one of the girls I went to school with because it was her mother that was like, hey, this is what she needs to do. This is where she needs to go. This is who she needs to call. So a friend's mother uh-huh. helped set that up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That's, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So I got out the yellow pages mm-hmm. back in the day, mm-hmm. made the phone call. And the day that I was scheduled to have an abortion, there was, um, the boyfriend was actually had a final and he wasn't able to go with me. And so I, you're not supposed to, but I drove myself to the clinic and had the abortion. After it was over, they're like, is your ride here? Yes, my ride is here. I left. I can't believe you did that alone. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you feel doing that alone, or were you just ready to get it over with? Yeah, I just looked at it as this is a problem, this is what the solution Mm -hmm. is, and Mm -hmm. then we'll just move forward. And what's interesting about that is because I was playing basketball at the time, and I wasn't able to play that week. And there's an actual newspaper article talking about the game that night and saying that our our power forward, Sean Osmond, was out for flu symptoms and she wasn't able to play and then this other girl was playing. And so it's like so strange that that would be documented. And that's the day you had And that was the, the day abortion. that the day that I couldn't couldn't be there because right. I was, you know, recovering from the abortion. I just thought that was so weird. That, that is very like strange. This. And that's out there. Like yeah. you know that that I was know. an article. You knew what was going on I behind knew what that. Was really going on. Oh my goodness. So I went home um, after the abortion that day and my mom's like, you okay? I was like, I'm just not feeling good. I'm not going to be able to play. And so for the next several days, I was just kind of taking it easy and then went back to school and it was just like never happened. Nothing never happened. We never had a conversation about it again. The boyfriend and I, we broke up, you know, not too long after that. But I just felt like, well, this was a kind of a crappy situation but mm. it was a problem we came up with a solution and now we just move forward mm. and then that's just what we did and that makes me think about um i just had the thought of of that guy mm-hmm. and i always wonder with with the guys did he ever think about that again did that affect his life did that affect if he ever had children mm-hmm. did that affect him going forward because i think the guys get forgotten a lot in it and in the healing process, whether they wanted it to happen or not, I think it's still a big piece of it. It's huge. And men struggle with past abortions more than anyone knows. And most men would never get help for it. Mm -hmm. But there is a need for abortion healing in men, just like there is in women. Mm -hmm. And is anything like that offered that you know of? Oh, good. Because we're going to talk about that too. Um, Well, let's, so going forward, Mm -hmm. I know you were struggling with drugs, alcohol. Tell me about that and what, what that looked like then. And how that came about from, well, and we may need to backtrack Mm -hmm. from after this abortion. So the guilt and shame just from being promiscuous in high school and then the thing that happened whenever the first time I'd ever gotten drunk had always stayed with me. After the abortion, that I think was even more of a thing. Like I was just thinking, man, I'm a really terrible person. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not a nice person because of what I've done. And that first year of college, after I had boarded the baby in my senior year, that first year of college, there was a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. I was actually working in a bar 
where all of that stuff was readily available. And that first year actually is kind of just a blur. And that first year of college, after I had boarded the baby in my senior year, that first year of college, there was a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. I was actually working in a bar where all of that stuff was readily available. And that first year actually is kind of just a blur. Guilt. Right. So when you're drinking and you're partying, typically you're with guys, you're having sex, you're having guilt and shame about that, and then you have... You drink more and you party more and it's just that cycle. Well, and don't you think that's a cycle for so many that um, you 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 have that guilt and that shame so you're avoiding the situation by the drinking and the drugs, but it's also in who you surround yourself with and you are surrounding yourself with people that do the same. And I think it was just uh, makes me think of just a way to numb out and to avoid and not think about what happened. Absolutely. Yeah. And then going back to that identity piece, my identity had become the party girl. Yes. I was the fun girl, the party girl, the girl that wasn't afraid to do anything and everything. And that's just, it's never what I wanted to be, but that's kind of who I became. Mm -hmm. And so how from there did you change that? What happened to, to turn you in a different direction? That didn't happen until much later. Okay. And so... College continued on that same pace, that same lifestyle, and then I got pregnant again. The second pregnancy was actually a one-night stand, and the guy that I slept with, I never even told him that I had the abortion. Mm. But I went to the exact same clinic. It was the same doctor, the same amount of money, like I'd already been there and done Did you that. go by yourself again? And I went by myself again. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And no one knew about that one. No one did. And so the thing that was pretty remarkable, though, about that experience is that the relief that I had when I'd had the first abortion, mm-hmm. that didn't come mm. this next time. Like, I kept waiting for the relief, yeah. Yeah. and it just never happened. And instead, I just began to kind of sink down into this hole. It felt just oppressive and heavy, and what I know now is that I was experiencing depression. Mm-hmm. A lot of anxiety. Well, and that you were carrying that all by yourself. Yeah. What And how many out there are, are dealing with the same thing or dealt with that and fully carrying it by themselves mm-hmm. because they're afraid to tell anyone? Yes, yes. Ugh. That was That was super heavy. And then I think for me the weight of what I'd done, like after that second abortion, like I really realized, man, this is something that is probably going to be a problem going forward Mm -hmm. because it was, I was so sad about it. Yeah. I was really so sad about it. But then you just kind of shove it down. You don't talk about it. You don't deal with it. You drink a little more, you distract yourself and then you just move on. Yeah. And what's, what's fascinating is that it's trauma. It's like this little trauma that's just buried, never dealt with. And what, I never knew then is that it's going to start manifesting in all different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was depression. It was anxiety, just a lot of fear, Mm -hmm. um, but, and just sleeplessness and all the things that go along. And those are the things that you hear, you know, I worked in a pregnancy resource center. And so we had women that came in that had had past abortions and we had a lady come in that was now in her, Oh my goodness. It was either like late forties, early fifties. She had, had heard about us and I knew her vaguely through others. 
And she came in one day and broke down at our kitchen table, had never told anyone um, except her husband, who was the guy that they both agreed to abort. And they both struggled for years with it. And that's years of carrying that around that she finally opened up and shared. And we led her to get help and get counseling. And she may even be one that I led to you, but I was just amazed in the things she talked about, how it came out in different marriage problems and, and different things that she pushed down and he pushed down and, and they never dealt with it. I can totally relate because abortion is so multifaceted and what it does internally is so complicated and complex. And the thing that is so ridiculous is that culture would tell you, hey, this is a woman's body. This is your choice. This is healthcare. There's no consequences to when you have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. There are so many consequences because it affects you physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Mm -hmm. Like all of those things. Mm -hmm. And it will affect every single relationship in your life. Marriage, children, mm -hmm. the way yes. that you even deal with the people that were part of that experience that didn't even know about it. I never realized how much anger I had towards my mom because I felt like I couldn't go to her with this problem. Does she know now? She does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been able to talk about it and resolve it. And, and actually, that was a big piece of recovery was making amends to yes. her and getting some of that into the light. But the, um, the trauma from abortion is real. Yes. It's something that's never talked about. And whenever you go into a Planned Parenthood or whatever clinic that you're going to go into to have an abortion, there's no counseling. There's nothing to say, you know, there may be some emotional things that happen as a result of this. It's nothing. It's like, listen, this is a tissue. This is a clump of cells. We're going to remove this. You're going to have about five days to recover, and then you're going to be fine. But that is not true. Mm -hmm. That is not the full story. It's not true. Mm -mm. No. Okay, so tell me from there where where your life led you. Okay. So after that, the partying continued, and it was, it was ramped up to the next level. But then I graduated from college somehow. <laughs> still, I still am absolutely amazed at how that even happened. But graduated from college, and then just was like, okay, I need a change of scenery. So I left um, West Texas and then ended up moving to Dallas, and then that's where I would meet Curtis. And so my life at the time was just so chaotic, and Curtis was stability, and like, I just needed some stability in my life. And plus, he was adorable and cute as he could be and all the things. And so when we started dating, things started to turn around for me. And one of the things that Curtis was, I was always upfront and honest with him about my past as far as drinking and partying and the drugs, but never shared with him about the abortions initially. But one thing he said is if this relationship is going to continue, the drugs, that cannot be a part of it. And so from that point forward, I never touched another drug. Mm. Um, so we dated for about three years and then we decided to get married. And so I had shared with him before we got married about one abortion and for some reason, in my rationale, I just thought two was just too much. Yeah. Like, I could share one. How long into the relationship before you told him about the one? Um, it was probably a couple... Well, it was probably after the first year. And so the question that comes to my mind, did you tell him about the first one? The when first you one. Were, 
And it makes me think that because my mind would go to if I had to share something like that. I was younger. They'll just think I was young. I didn't know what I was mm-hmm. doing. But if I share that second one, yeah. that's like I was in college one night stand. I could have made a better choice. Yes. And again, that guilt and shame that yeah. kept you from sharing that. Exactly. So that was the other thing. And then um, another thing that I forgot to mention is through that whole entire time that I was partying and drinking, I was also battling a pretty bad eating disorder. So bulimia, mm. over-exercising, some stints of weight, which could probably be classified as anorexia. And even now when I look back in pictures, I would just be like, wow, I obviously was super sick. Which is just another way that you coped, that you helped get through the situation. Yeah. Um, that's just another, another form of... Um, a numbing for you. Yeah, exactly. So just a lot of baggage mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff that was so, they, these were all such big secrets. Yes. Nobody knew about my eating disorder. Nobody knew about my drug habit. Nobody knew how much I was drinking. Had you told Curtis about the eating disorder? You know, I don't remember. Yeah. I cannot remember if I ever shared that with him when we were dating. Obviously it came back. It came up after we were right. married. Right. But I don't remember if I shared that with him. Yeah. So much of what I shared with him was when I had been drinking. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it I just don't remember. Yeah. So when did you stop the drinking? When so, when did that occur? So after Curtis and I met, like we would drink socially and there would be still times where we would party pretty hard, but the amount and the frequency decreased tremendously. Okay. And Curtis is just, he's not a drinker. I mean, he'll drink socially, but he doesn't drink the way I drink. Yeah. And his family, they're not, they don't drink. Like my family, we all drink. We party. We have a lot of people that probably have addiction that have not said that they do. So I can't speak their truth. But I see it now knowing that I'm an addict that, yes, we have addiction in our family. And so, but he never drank that way. He was never exposed to it. And so um, it slowed down a lot when we got, when we got married. His business is the restaurant business. And so he was gone a lot of nights and weekends. And um, when we decided to start a family, we decided that, hey, you're going to stop working and you're just going to be home with the with the kids, which was amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. that was so incredible. And so we started trying to get pregnant after we had been married for about three years. And then there was nothing wrong, but we just weren't able to get pregnant like right off the bat. In my mind, I'm thinking, I got pregnant, you know, twice, not wanting yeah. to. How hard is it to get pregnant? And then when I wanted to get pregnant, I couldn't. Yes. And then... Did the, your mind ever go to, it's because of what I did? Yes, yes, absolutely. And then that was the narrative. Well, this is your punishment mm. for aborting your children. Which you we all know God does not punish that's you right. for that. Yes. You don't get to have kids because mm. of what you did. And the lie of the enemy then was, and you would never be a good mother anyway. Oh, well. You've already murdered two of your children. Mm. Why would he give you kids? And even if he does give you a child, you're going to be a terrible mother, right? Right. So it was that Mm storyline. And Curtis would even tell you early on in our dating relationship, I would tell him, I do not want to have kids. I do not want to have kids. And that was because he didn't know it at the time, but that's why. Mm -hmm. Um, But as we dated and, you know, my heart started to change and I had met somebody that I really did want to have children with, then that, that changed. But it was just... A little bit hard to get pregnant and so that's when I really kind of started wrestling with the past abortions but we did get pregnant and Olivia was um, probably I want to say it was probably 16 weeks when I saw her for the first time on her on the sonogram 
and it was fingers, toes, nose, eyes, like her face Mm -hmm. just on a a blurry screen. And that was like kind of like where the bottom fell out for me because I had aborted my first baby at 12 weeks, which was only, you know, four weeks Uh before that, Mm -hmm. that sonogram. And I'm thinking, well, if it, this was just four weeks older, this was not just a clump of cells. Yeah. Right. And no. I knew that anyway. I know you knew. And but you tell yourself mm-hmm. that lie. So yeah. And that gives me chills just it. even thinking about that little four week difference. Oh my gosh. And I can't imagine how that must have felt in that moment while you watch that sonic It was so heavy. It was so heavy. And it was something that I felt like I couldn't even share with Curtis. Right. We were so happy that we were pregnant and we had this baby. Yes. And then it was just like. Ooh, I just cannot get that out of my head. But Olivia was born, amazing, beautiful, perfect. And then um, Jake came 20, 21 months later. So they were really quick, back to back. And um, when I really started struggling the most is we were stay-at-home mom on the floor with Jake and Olivia just playing. And I just kept getting this, this thought or this idea that I shouldn't just have two children. I should have four. And like my heart was like just so sad about that because I'm like looking at my precious Olivia, and my precious Jake. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's two more that should be here. Right. So that was really hard. And I never shared that with Curtis either. And being at home with two small kids and just dealing with all this stuff in my head, I started uh, numbing out with alcohol pretty much every day. And so my pattern is I would... I was working as a personal trainer and um, coaching some clients, just doing part-time work. So I would get up and do all that stuff in the morning and then come home and be with the kids and be with Curtis before he would go to work. And then that time period, usually sometime between three and six after Curtis was gone, that's when I would have my first glass of wine. And it just made everything feel less stressful. Mm -hmm. So less stressful having two small children really close in age less stressful of just kind of dealing with all the junk that was always rattling around in my head. And it just felt like something I could do that was super acceptable. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the other women that I was associated with at the time had small children too. And we all drank wine at the same time. And it was just so, it just seems so innocuous. And it's so well accepted now to, you know, oh my gosh, my kids are going to drive me crazy. I'm going to have a glass of wine or I'm going to have this or that. It's, it's become just okay yeah. and an excuse to start doing that when you don't realize it more than likely is making you a little more depressed, maybe edgy, yes. uh, you're, and not to mention, depending how many you're having, how well are you parenting? Right. I can't tell you like the number of playdates that I have been to and ended up half drunk at the playdate because mm-hmm. all the moms were drinking wine. Yes. Yeah. Terrible, yeah. terrible, terrible. But anyway, so that's when my drinking started to ramp back up. And Curtis knew that I was drinking, but he didn't know how much because I was really, really good at hiding it. So I could drink anywhere from a bottle to two bottles a night. Oh, wow. By the time I ended my drinking career, I would start with a six-pack of beer and then have a bottle, at least a bottle of wine. And then sometimes I would have more, just depending on kind of the night or how I was feeling and the whole while getting up every morning, going and training clients, doing all the things, just putting on this smile and just going on with my life and nobody knew how bad I was struggling. And you couldn't have felt that great every day. Terrible. Yes. I can't imagine. But you just get used to feeling so bad all the time. You don't even know that you feel bad. Yeah. Um, 
So that went on for a few years. And then there got to a point, it was actually Curtis's 38th birthday. And um, we had started to struggle in our marriage because he was working a lot at night. By the time he would come home, I was already in bed, passed out. I would get up early in the morning, go and work out, do my thing. He would be with the kids. By the time I would get home, he would be getting ready for work. So there was just a period of our life where I was just focused on the kids and doing my thing. He was focused on work and doing his thing. And like we were really starting to kind of pull apart. And there were definitely some cracks in the plaster. And um, But we were at a party. It was his 38th birthday and we were at a one of his friends house I had a pool and I was always a pre-drinker I always felt super uncomfortable in social settings mm-hmm. and around people so I would always drink before I got to the event yeah, we always had a drink before we went somewhere yeah. it was like I like the pre-drink it yeah. was it was always a pre-drink the pre-drink so I had a few pre-drinks before we actually got to the party and at the end of my drinking career, I just was not able to tolerate alcohol the way that I used to. And so it's like less and less and I would get drunker and drunker. And so by the time that we got to the pool party, I was already pretty, pretty buzzed. And then it was, and for whatever reason, there's lots of stuff about that night I can't remember, but I do remember Curtis like trying to manage my drinking. He always did that. Like he would, I would open a drink or have a drink and I would take a sip and then he would take that from me and give me water. You know, he was always trying to manage how much I was going to drink because he knew that I was going to get drunk. And I can't even imagine how many times I have embarrassed him beyond belief because of my behavior. And there's a lot of shame that goes Mm. with that too. But that night in particular, I was there and there were a lot of people there that I didn't really know. And so Curtis was mingling and kind of talking to all these people. And I wasn't necessarily in charge, but I was the adult that was overseeing the pool with all the kids, including my kids in it. And the next morning, I couldn't remember any of it. Oh, my goodness. And you were in charge. Oh, my goodness. Like, so I was in a blackout while I was walking, talking, overseeing the area where all the kids were swimming. Yeah. And... And then I actually had come home and had like beers that I had taken from the house in my purse. And, you know, it was just like, what is, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. Like, what am I doing? And it was just, I I told Curtis, I said, babe, I I really want to stop drinking, but I don't know how to do it. Because I had tried to stop drinking a couple of times on my own. And I'd have a couple of months where I would be doing okay. But there was always just that craving and just when I would get stressed or anxious, I just wanted to take the edge off and just make it go away. Yeah, that's, that's what you turn to yeah, automatically. That's, that's what I would turn to. Yeah. And so that it was that that was on a Sunday night whenever we had the party. And by Wednesday, I was enrolled in outpatient treatment center through La Hacienda Ranch. And it was a 90 day program. And like, I was so ready, Carla. I was so done with just all of it. And I did want to stop. And I saw the writing on the wall based on some of the people in my family and the, the lives that they had led that had already passed. And I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to die like that. Yeah. And um, so in recovery, it was amazing because I learned a lot of like why we drink and a lot of the connections to our genetics and some of us are more predisposed and what happens to the brain of someone who is more predisposed to addiction than somebody else. And I remember sitting in a class one day and one of the doctors was like, if you have the brain of an alcoholic, when you take a drink, this part of your brain lights up and, you know, he was showing us the, the images of 
um, CAT scans of people that would take a drink and what would happen to their frontal lobe versus people that would take a drink that were normal, what would happen to their frontal lobe. And like that started making sense to me because I never could understand like, why is it I have one drink and then I can't stop? Yeah. Curtis could have a half a glass of wine yeah. and leave it on the table. Yeah. And then That's I would fascinating finish fascinating how, how that works. Right. It's insane. Yeah. But then when I started looking at that, I was like, well, this makes so much sense. So what you're telling me is, is that I can never have one drink. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. I was like, okay, because I've always tried to control it. Why can't I control this? Because it's going to trigger you to just keep going. Exactly. Yeah. So that was so helpful. But then the other thing that was super helpful was that my first sponsor in recovery, she said, you know, all of this stuff is so good, so important, so great. But if you really want to get well, you just need to meet Jesus. Mm. And I was like, oh. Was this an AA type program or no? Okay. This was just through law. Just curious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I was like, okay, well, what does that mean exactly? Like, meet Jesus. I know who Jesus is. I know about God. My grandfather is a Baptist preacher. Mm -hmm. I was raised in church. Like, I know who Jesus is. Yeah. And she's like, no, you need to know who he is and have a relationship with him. And I'd heard have a relationship with Jesus my whole entire life. Like, I knew all the Christian needs. Right. But, but did you ever know what having a relationship meant? Nope. That, that was me. I didn't know. I knew, too who there was a Jesus, I knew all the things, went to church, but I didn't know what it meant to have a relationship. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. So after that treatment program was done, um, and not a whole lot of people knew about me being in treatment. My sister knew, and I had shared with my mom and my stepdad, and to this day, Curtis's parents don't know. They came and helped with the kids, but they didn't know why they were there. They okay. just said they were here being good grandparents because yeah. they are amazing grandparents. And um, so it's interesting that that's still kind of something that mm -hmm. is not shared freely. Not that I have would have any problem about it sharing now, but I just don't even know if it's even important now. But right, right. Anyway, so, um, but after treatment was over, it was 90 meetings and 90 days. And that's when I started going to AA, and um, my my club was the Northland Club, which is right up Mopac, and I spent a lot of time in that AA community, and I was even sharing this um, in jail, in my jail ministry not too long ago, like Olivia and Jake were raised in AA because they were four and two, almost three, whenever mm -hmm. I stopped drinking, and they were with me all the time, and so I would have to schedule meetings where there was a babysitter there at the meeting so I could take them, drop them off at the AA babysitter while I went to a meeting that I would stay and babysit so that person could go and get their meeting. And so there would be some times when we'd be at the AA house at, at night from, you know, 6 to 9 p.m. Yeah. And um, if you've ever been into an AA house, it's just, it's an interesting place. Yeah. It's dark and it's a lot of smoking and it's people from every walk of life that are connected all because of this common bond and it's the saddest most hopeful place right exactly <laughs> that's what I was gonna say yeah it's yeah I can't imagine oh and just dragging those babies into the AA meetings and you know walking through the cloud of smoke mm -hmm. as you're going into the meetings just trying to cover their heads up yeah and, oh my gosh I just think back about it and it just makes me so sad but um but that was a, an amazing place to build community and get sober and meet my first sponsor and and um, she's the one that started taking me to church okay and um, she started taking me to Riverbend Church and so I started going to church services 
And instead of just going and going through the motions, like I really began to listen. And then she's the one that taught me how to do a daily quiet time. She's the one that taught me, Sean, you have to begin to listen for the Lord. He's always speaking, but you're so distracted mm. that you can't hear anything that he's trying to tell you. Yeah. And so she was the one that was like, when you sit, and I, I would start for three minutes. That was it. I would sit and she would say, you need to sit in silence and listen to the Lord, set a timer and do it for three minutes. And I couldn't do it. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. When I first started trying to do it, I could not do it. And you think about today's world and today's time yeah. and the amount of distractions, it's probably even more difficult oh, for I people imagine. To, to do it. Yeah, I cannot even imagine now. But so she's the one that taught me how to do all of those things. And um, like things started changing for me. Mm. Like whenever I would get into God's word and I would just start to pray like and read and say, Lord, help me understand. Like I was starting to like understand what the word was. And I wanted to read. I wanted to be in the word. I wanted to be in church. I wanted to be with God's people. Like I was just drawn. And what about Curtis? Was he involved in this with you then? Um, not initially. Like we were going to church um, here locally just to um, be in church. Okay. And so we were trying to do like he was supporting me and going to church, but he wasn't walking with Jesus. Okay. He was just, you know, doing doing. Doing Almost the checking the box. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we did that for a year here. That first year of recovery was kind of what that looked like. And then Curtis got the opportunity to move to Jacksonville, Florida with his job. And then he's like, hey, I got this job. Should we go? And I'm like, yeah, let's go. I was, I was so excited about going and doing something new. And I'd had a year of sobriety. So I felt super confident. He was like, you've only had a year of sobriety. He was not confident. Yeah. You know, he was absolutely terrified. And he would say later that as we were driving with the kids and our luggage and the U-Haul to Florida, when the kids and I would be sleeping, he would just be crying. (laughs) He was so terrified. (laughs) And he was just crying and praying. And he said the first thing that he was like, the Lord just brought to mind when we got to Florida is we just got to get a church. Let's just find a church. Mm -hmm. So Carla, we didn't even know where we were going to live yet. And we were just kind of driving around, you know, looking at the area and trying to figure out schools and houses. And we stopped at a church. It was called Beach United Methodist Church. And we went in that day and we found out where all the services were. We got the kids enrolled in their preschool program and we still didn't even know where we were going to (laughs) live. Oh my gosh. I can't believe y'all did (laughs) that. It was so funny. But, um, but it was at that church that there was a pastor there that he was just a gospel-centered, preaching, teaching pastor. He was young. He was on fire for the Lord. And like he presented the gospel in a way that I had never heard and mm. never experienced. I mean, it was just out of the Bible. This is how it applies to your life. Yeah. Boom, boom. Yeah. And Curtis was like, wow. And so it, for him, too, it all started making sense for him. And God was just drawing Curtis in the same time that he was drawing me oh, in. That's so beautiful. And then as our faith grew, like our marriage grew. And then as Christ became the center of our home, like our children's faith began to grow. So that from the time that Olivia and Jake were really five and, and, and three, like they have just been inundated with all things Jesus, mm. all things God. And our family just running after Jesus as hard as we can. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of transformation happened in Jacksonville. And how long were you in Jacksonville? Uh, we were there for, we were only supposed to be there for two years, but we ended up being there for six. Oh, okay. Because God had other plans yeah. for me and as for my always. recovery. <laughs> And so one of the things in recovery that I worked through was the fourth, all the 12 steps, but the fourth step was something that it's basically you're just doing a fearless moral inventory and you're getting some stuff out. 
in recovery, we learn it's our secrets that keep us sick. Mm. And so, um, and you had some secrets, I had some big secrets yeah. and I had got to work through and process and confess a lot of those secrets. But the things I didn't know what to do with were those two abortions. Yeah. And I asked my sponsor before I left, um, Texas to go to Florida, I said, I, I don't know what to do with this. Like, how do you make amends for something like yeah. this? And she said, Sean, she said, you just have to pray and ask the Lord for a way to provide healing because he's faithful and he's going to do that for mm. you. And so that first year in recovery was just like, Lord, I don't know what to do with this, but I trust that you're going to provide a way. Yeah. And so the church that we went to there in Jacksonville, one of the things that's super important in recovery is serving. And so um, I asked the guy, one of the pastors that was working there, I said, hey, I'd love, love to serve with women. I'd love to work with women in recovery or addiction or homelessness, women in crisis, like something like that would be amazing. And he sent me this place called First Coast Women's Service, which I didn't know what that was at the time, but it was a crisis pregnancy center. Oh, uh, what was it called? First Coast Women's Service. First Coast, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I went in not really knowing what it was. And then when I got there, I was like, oh, okay. Okay, I can still do this. This is okay. Yeah. And um, had a interview with the lady that was in charge of the facility that day. And she was like, hey, here's an application. Fill this out. We'd love to have, you know, we'd love to have you volunteer. And then on the application, there's a question and it says, are you post-abortive? Yes, we have that on ours too. I was like, what? Mm -hmm. I'm not answering that. You know, like I wasn't going to answer it because that is not anybody's business. Yeah. (laughs) Did you put yes or no? I put yes because it's our secrets that keep us sick. Yes. Yeah. So I've been working that in recovery and learning and learning to be truthful about all things. Mm -hmm. So I checked that and then I was like, thank you so much for your time. And I was walking out and before I could leave, she was like, um, Miss Osmond, I see here that this says that you're post abortive. (laughs) She went right to that question. Really? And um, I just stopped and (laughs) was just like, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe I'm going to have a conversation about this with someone. Mm. And I turned around and I said yes. And that's the first time I'd ever admitted it out loud, um, except to my sponsor. And she said, um, the reason, and I guess she saw the look on my face. She was like, hey, 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 the reason that we ask this is because if you're going to serve in our in our center, we just have to be sure that you're okay. Yes. Right? That's that exactly you, it. Yeah, yes. that you have experienced mm-hmm. healing and that you know that, that God loves you and that there is forgiveness for this. Yeah. And I could just hear my sponsor saying, hey, pray for a way for healing. And, God will and what a way he provided. And he did. And you know, for someone to come into a pregnancy resource center that has had past abortions, what better person that's gotten healing that has come to know the Lord to help the other women that walk through that door. And they know that just like we knew that too. Oh, so it was so intense. Yeah. And so she told me, she said, we offer a Bible study through this um, pregnancy center. It's called forgiven and set free. Mm -hmm. And, um, she said, and if you do want us to volunteer here, we require that you go through it. And we have one starting in two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, wow. (laughs) So I signed up for it. Okay, God, here we go. (laughs) Signed up for it, went through it. And, um, man, it was a hard study. Mm -hmm. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And, um, there was so much in it. And I would just, I would come home from the Bible study each week, just, Look like I had been hit by a car and mm-hmm. thrown in the ocean, yeah. and, you know, yeah. thrown in a dryer. Just well, so much buried, up. buried so deep inside. Yes, you know. And um, it was in that study that we started talking about. You know, this is just something that we have to be. We have to be honest and truthful in everything that we do. But this is something that you know has to be let out. 
And then I was thinking, okay, here I'm going through this study and I still have not told Curtis about my second abortion. Mm. So that was a really hard thing. Because you knew, because what is the same? What have you said? Secrets will keep us sick. Yeah. So I remember at some point during that study going home and just like, baby, I got to tell you something. Uh, He was just like, oh, okay, what is this going to be about? Right. Yeah. He had already been on such a roller coaster with me through the past few years. So I was able to sit down and talk to him about that and just share and and um, it was so great being able to come home and just being able to talk to him about the things that I was mm-hmm. learning and the things I was processing because yeah. he was always so supportive. Yeah. Like he <laughs> has been my biggest cheerleader yeah. through all of it. And how beautiful to finally get all that in the open, which which the enemy never wanted you to do. Right. You know, he wanted those secrets to keep you sick and yeah. keep you stuck. Yeah. And that's what I think of sick and stuck. Yeah. And now you ha- you had that freedom. You let go of all of it. Now you were like open hands, free to yes. to do God's work. God, it was so incredible. Yeah. And you know, part of what I learned in that study is that my identity is not found in my past sin and mistakes. Yeah. My identity is in Christ. Mm-hmm. Period. No mm-hmm. matter what my life looked like before him. And so having a new identity that freed me up too. Yes. Not having the secrets being able to get all this stuff out into the light. And honestly, Carla, once all the stuff was out in the light, like a lot of that power was taken away Yeah. because it didn't feel so big and overwhelming. Sometimes when we keep our secrets in, there's so much and they're so big, it just feels like we don't even know what to do with it. Yeah. But when you can just put it on paper and look at it and say, okay, this is the problem. This is what we're dealing with. This is what we're asking forgiveness for. This is what we're asking for healing for. Mm-hmm. This is what we need help yeah. with. Yeah. And you're like, okay, this is what it is. And the enemy hates it when we bring that stuff to light. Yeah. He hates it. Yeah. Because he knows out there that Jesus can heal it and will heal it and, and then yeah. we can deal with yeah. it. So bringing that stuff out was super important. And then the study was so impactful for me. Like there, like I dealt with some anger that I'd been holding on to. I mentioned that earlier with my mom mm-hmm. and like the shame and guilt piece, the forgiveness piece. One thing that I had really struggled with as a believer was thinking that Jesus would be able to forgive me for that sin. Like I, I, I knew that he could forgive me for all the other stuff, but I was like, man, the sin of abortion is different. Yeah. It's too big. It's too That's big. what we think. We think it's too it's big. It's too big. Yeah. And, um, one of the ladies that was coaching me when I was going through that study, she was one of the facilitators. She was like, she said, Sean, she said, you know, if, if you can't accept forgiveness and forgive yourself for what you did mm-hmm. having that abortion and receive Jesus's forgiveness then what he did on the cross doesn't matter yeah like the cross is big enough for all sin even your sin of abortion yeah and that was when I specifically asked God to forgive me for my sin of abortion and not just lumped it in with everything else mm-hmm. like I just felt like the weight of the world lifted off yeah. my shoulders yeah. because I knew that I was forgiven right for that specifically yeah. and Even he's just horrible. been waiting for you to yes. do it just waiting leading you to all the different mm-hmm. paths and opening up those doors and waiting with open arms yeah. and just yes yeah yes exactly. I forgive you it was incredible yeah like there was so much freedom there's a reason that that study is called forgiven and set free mm-hmm. because like once you go through that process like you are set free from mm-hmm. the guilt the condemnation the yes. shame like all the things that we tell ourselves yeah yeah so share with me from that how this then led you into now you teach these classes mm-hmm. and you are in a jail ministry 
And you also have another title that you haven't shared. What mm -hmm. is that? Yes. So I actually am a chaplain, a contract chaplain at Travis County Correctional Unit. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do as my job now. But when I was still in Jacksonville, when I went through that study, I decided not to volunteer at the Resource Center. And instead, I was still volunteering for the Resource Center, but I did it through the Forgiveness at Free Study. So I went through training to be a facilitator for that specifically okay because it was such a game changer for me i was like oh my gosh this is how i want to help women yeah just like halfway through the study i was like oh this is what i want to do too and so went through the training to become a facilitator and then while i was in florida i just i really kept thinking gosh this these abortions were tied so heavily to my addiction you know, I wonder if this is why some of the women that are in and out of the jail system that struggle with addiction, I wonder if it's because they have abortion in their mm -hmm. past. So that thought just kind of landed in my head. And then I thought, well, I wonder if this would be something that you could take into a jail or a prison. Actually, prison was what kept coming to mind. And then so I made some phone calls and had some contacts there and kind of tried to reach out in different ways. And it just never, it never came to fruition. So mm -hmm. I was like, well, maybe that was just something that was in my head. And then we ended up coming back to um, Jackson or back to Austin from Jacksonville. And then I was actually having dinner with a friend, and um, I wasn't drinking. The whole table was having wine, and um, it was Jamie Ivy. She was uh -huh. sitting next to me. She was like, "You don't like wine?" I was like, "Oh, I, I like it a lot." <laughs> she was like, "Why aren't you <laughs> Too drinking?" Much. I was like, "Oh, I'm you know I'm in recovery. I'm I'm an alcoholic, and I've been sober for you know this long." And she was like, "Oh, have you ever thought about doing jail ministry?" Yes, <laughs> just like. Well, kind of. Yeah. Well, tell me more about it. And yeah. so in Jamie's mind, she was thinking, you know, just because I've been through recovery and the steps, that that might be a really great way to be able to help women in, in jail because she was part of a jail ministry mm -hmm. at Travis County. And so that's how I started volunteering in the jail. And it was great because I was able to walk with women through the steps and kind of be able to really understand their their um, addiction situation because yeah. I'd been there and explain to them that there was hope on the other side and this is how you do it. But one thing that kept coming up with a lot of these women were past abortions. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, God, I see what you did. Mm -hmm. So I went to the chaplain at the time and just said, hey, there's this Bible study called Set Free, Forgiveness Set Free. I think it would be really beneficial to some of these women that have abortion that are struggling with addiction. What do you think? He was like, yes, bring it in. I was like, yeah. well, okay. <laughs> so we brought it in and started having some really good turnout for it great success with it. It was amazing. And so that's how I started volunteering with Travis County. And that was back in 2017, I think, some somewhere around there. So I volunteered um, up until COVID and going in every week, just being with the women, doing forgiveness at free, mm -hmm. also doing um, recovery work. And then um, one of the contract chaplains that had been over the women, she ended up moving. And so there was an open position and so um, the head chaplain just asked me, hey, would you be interested in coming in and just being a contract chaplain? So there's no formal training, but you're just going to be taking the experience that you've had up until this point and continuing teaching Bible studies and leading the women. And would yeah. you, would you want to do that? And I was like, and get paid? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm on board. I do it for free, <laughs> but if you want to pay yeah. me, I'll do it. Yeah. And so I've been doing that since January. Okay. And so how many days a week are you doing that? I do it two days a week. Two days a week. Yeah. Okay. Two days, two days a week and then just a prep day. And I've got, I've gotten to see you in action cause you know, you put the hook out and reeled me in <laughs> and back, um, prior to COVID I was on the prayer ministry 
And um, so we just used to write letters to the inmates. Um, they would put things out there for prayer. And so we did that. And then, um, uh, and then just this last year, well, 2022, wait, when did I start? This year, this 2023. Year. <laughs> uh, uh, I put in the application and started going to the jail and uh, once a week volunteering and what an amazing, incredible, beautiful experience. And um, so I've gotten to see Sean. I haven't sat in on the, the actual classes, but we do a weekly uh, Bible study with the ladies in the jail. And people can can sign up for that and apply and do the background checks. We and, love to have volunteers mm -hmm. that love on these women. Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a neat ministry. Yeah, and, and we always need to have good volunteers. And it's it's not anything that I really thought I was ever going to do, but you know when when God calls you and puts it out there, you know you say yes. That's right. And it's been a gift to me too to be in there with the ladies and um there's just something out of it every week that i get out of it and come home and share mm. the blessing it was to me mm. not what i was able to do for them that's how it always you is. know it's incredible yeah. yeah i wanted to circle back with one thing so whenever the lord put on my heart that that forgiveness that free mm -hmm. should be in prisons well, he really didn't mean that. So now I have the opportunity to take forgiveness set free into the Lockhart facility, the state prison that is there in Lockhart. And we're going to be starting that in the fall. In the uh, women's faith that's incredible. Room, which is insane because I always thought it was just that jail is what he did, yeah. but he didn't. He so will that, be, will that be once a week? <laughs> That'll be once a week. Okay. And that's a volunteer position. Yeah. Okay. So I'm super excited about that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And you know, in the, in the jail, I know you, you do things outside of that with one-on-ones and go a little deeper into the into the jail where it's um what's the word i'm trying to think of maximum security, maximum security. Mm -hmm. um you know too so there's a lot lot involved for you mm -hmm. when you are there as a volunteer for me i do the bible study and then um, there's a lot of times if you want to be there and do a one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. for some of the inmates that need it, that's another thing that happens too. So, yeah. um, and that's in Austin, Texas, Travis County Jail. So I'm going to put all the information in the show notes on that and on your on the um, on the class on anything that Sean is able to pro provide me. It'll be in the show notes on her previous podcast she did with Jamie Ivy. Um, that was several years ago, but I remember way back when, when I listened to that mm -hmm. and I was like, wow. And I think it was after that, I met you shortly so. after, right? Yes. We were at a church function and then I was like, oh, that's the Sean Osmond I mm -hmm. listened to on the podcast. Yeah. And, um, so I know that was several years ago, but I will link that too, um, because all of this is so important, um, and it'll all be avenues where people can reach out um, that have been in these same situations that just need help and so and need to release um, release that hold and and let go and be free. You know. Amen. And um, so I will include all that. But is there anything else you want the listeners to know that we didn't cover? Is there is there anything that you want to share with them or um, encouragement? Anything? I think. This is, I think this is what the encouragement would be. Do not ever let the enemy convince you that you're disqualified for kingdom work mm -hmm. because of your past. Mm -hmm. 
because this is what I know based on my own experience, is that Jesus took the darkest, saddest, most horrible aspects of my life, and he redeemed those things. He was able to heal me, and now he's using my story for his glory Mm -hmm. and my good. Yeah. And it was all the horrible things that he's using now to bring other women to him. And that's what I'd like to point out. For one, there was no judgment. Mm -hmm. The judgment comes from ourselves. There's no judgment by him. There's grace. That's right. And the other thing is we may not want these stories the Lord dealt us, not not the Lord dealt us, let me back up, that happened and that we were dealt. Mm -hmm. Um, We may not want those and we wish we could change them. And there's times you go back and you might go, oh, I wish I'd have never done that or regret this or regret that. But for one thing, he wants us going forward Mm -hmm. and looking forward and eyes on him. But also those parts of our story are so we can help others. Yeah. And that's that's the biggest piece that I love about doing this podcast is I want to have women on that are these courageous, I mean, just warrior women that have pushed through, but that their stories, your pains and heartbreaks and the things you went through can now speak to someone else and help them get healing and help them to know Christ. And if we've done that, then, you know, that that then we're done <laughs> Preach it, right you know i know that's i'm so passionate about that and i know you are too yes. and that's why i knew i wanted you on here and i knew that someone out there is um going to find healing Amen. through this and and through your story so thank you for being here oh i'm going to ask you one more thing okay. that i ask everyone at the end because this is called your age it's not your cage okay but how in you how are you in your own life right now? Not letting your age be your cage. What 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 for you is? Um, it can be anything. Fun, exciting. It can be whatever. You know, I think for me right now, I I am the healthiest and the strongest. And how old are you? Uh, fifty two. Fifty two. Yeah. Yep. Healthier and stronger, mentally, physically, spiritually, mm. than I ever have ever have been in my whole entire life. And um, there was a really interesting situation that happened on the lake um, not too long ago. We had some friends that were here in town, some of my daughter's friends, and we're all surfing behind the boat and just having a great time. And it was so fun because I was like, here I am at the age that I am, and I'm behind a boat surfing with all these kids Mm -hmm. and absolutely loving it and doing it and loving life and not having to worry about fear of falling or injury or anything because I'm strong. My body's strong and healthy. And it was just such a joy to be able to experience that in my life, just being physically strong, mentally strong, and spiritually sound. And you go, girl, because look at the example that you are being to all those those younger (laughs) youngsters that were out there going, man, she's awesome. She's cool. That's so funny. Um, Okay, well, we will end on that note. But again, just thank you for being here. I just absolutely love talking to you. And it's just like our normal sitting down, hanging out and talking. So sometimes we get carried away, but that's okay. It's it's an important story to tell, and I wouldn't want to miss one point. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Carl. I love you so much. I love you too. Okay.